Hello, this is Dr. Ben Shenqian, the Editor-in-Chief of HeartRhythm. Thank you for listening to this podcast summarizing the December 2020 issue of the journal. This issue is focused on the devices. The first original article is titled Safety of the Leadless Pacemaker Implantation in the Very Elderly. The authors conducted a multi-center study in patients 85 years and older who received a micro leadless pacemaker or a single-chamber transvenous pacemaker. The authors found that the micro leadless pacemaker implantation was successful in 98.4% of all patients. It was safe with no difference in procedure-related complications compared to the transvenous pacemaker group. The microdealous pacemaker resulted in significantly shorter procedure times. Next up is a paper titled Transvenous Phrenic Nerve Stimulation for Central Sleep Apnea is safe and effective in patients with concomitant cardiac devices. Transvenous phrenic nerve stimulation requires placing a lead to stimulate the phrenic nerve and activate the diaphragm for the treatment of central sleep apnea. The authors studied 64 patients with a concomitant cardiac implantable devices. There were only four oversensing events in three patients leading to one appropriate defibrillation shock and delivery of anti-tachycardia pacing. The authors conclude that concomitant cardiac implantable devices and transvenous phrenic nerve stimulation therapy is safe and does not affect the efficacy in treatment of central sleep apnea. The following article is Predictors of Atrial Mechanical Sensing and Atrial Ventricular Synchrony with the Leadless Ventricular Pacemaker. The authors analyzed 64 patients enrolled in the MARBLE-2 study, which tested the efficacy of AV synchronous pacing with a micro-leadless pacemaker. Previously, low amplitude of the micro-sensed atrial signal, or A4, was observed to be a factor of low AV synchrony. In the present study, data were analyzed to identify predictors of A4 amplitude and high AV synchrony. The results show that clinical parameters and echocardiographic markers of atrial function are associated with A4 signal amplitude. High AV synchrony can be predicted by E2A ratio of less than 0.94 and low sinus rate variability at rest on echo. Coming up next is effect of QRS area reduction and myocardial scar on the hemodynamic response to cardiac resynchronization therapy. The authors performed a study in 26 patients to determine whether reducing QRS area leads to an acute hemodynamic response and whether SCAR affects this interaction. They found that changes of QRS area and QRS duration predicted the changes 
OVLV DVDT Max after CRT. Myocardial scar adversely affects the changes of the QRS area and the acute hemodynamic response. These findings may support the use of the changes of QRS area and cardiac magnetic resonance in optimizing CRT using quadrupolar left ventricular lead. The next article is titled Morbidity and Mortality in Patients Precluded for Transvenous Pacemaker Implantation Experience with the Leadless Pacemaker A total of uh, 2,817 patients underwent a micro-implantation attempt of whom 546, or 19% of patients, deemed ineligible for transvenous permanent pacemaker implantation for reasons such as venous access issues or prior device infections. The authors found that all-cause mortality is higher in micro patients deemed ineligible for transvenous permanent pacemaker implantation than in non-precluded micro patients and those who received a transvenous pace, permanent pacemaker, in part related to a higher instance of chronic comorbidities in these patients. The overall major complication rate was low and did not differ by preclusion status. The following article is titled Safety of Magnetic Resonance Imaging Scanning in patients with cardiac resynchronization therapy defibrillators incorporating quadripolar left ventricular leads. The authors studied the MRI safety with CRT defibrillators or CRTDs incorporating quadripolar left ventricular or LV leads in a total of 230 subjects. A total of 159 patients completed a protocol-required MRI scan with no scan-related complications. All episodes of EF were appropriately sensed and treated. The authors conclude that in patients with CRTD systems and quadrupolar LVDs undergoing 1.5 Tesla MRI, the scanning was safe with no significant changes in the ICD performance. These results suggest that MRI in patients having a device with quadripolar leads can be performed without negative impact on CRT delivery. Coming up is progressive implantable cardioverter defibrillator therapies for ventricular tachycardia. The efficacy and the safety multiple bursts, reps, and low-energy shocks. The authors investigated the efficacy and safety of progressive therapies for VTs between 150 and 200 beats per minute. After three failed bursts, the authors compared, uh, compared three reps versus three bursts followed by a low-energy shock versus high-energy shock. A total of 1,126 VT episodes were included. Programming up to six burst ATP therapies for VTs 150 to 200 beats per minute can avoid ICD shock in most patients. Ramp anti-tachycardia pacing after failed bursts were similarly effective. 
low-energy shocks are less effective and more arrhythmogenic than high-energy shocks. The final device paper is titled High-Rate Pacing, guided by short-term variability of repolarization prevents imminent ventricular arrhythmias automatically by an implantable cardioverter defibrillator in a chronic atrioventricular block dog model. The authors used eight dogs with complete chronic AV block and torsada palm ventricular arrhythmias induced by dofetilide. An ICD was implanted with software to automatically determine short-term variability of repolarization in real time. The authors found that short-term variability detected by the ICD can guide high-rate pacing automatically by an ICD to prevent ventricular arrhythmias. This data suggests a new approach to prevent the torsade palm ventricular arrhythmias by implanted devices. In addition to device-related papers, this issue of the journal also includes papers on the other subjects. The first one is titled Alcohol Consumption and the Risk of Atrial Fibrillation in Asymptomatic Healthy Adults. The authors screened 19,634 asymptomatic healthy adults and found 160 new onset atrial fibrillation during mean follow-up of seven years. The instance of new onset atrial fibrillation was higher in drinkers. There was a dose-dependent increase in the risk of atrial fibrillation according to the amount of alcohol consumed, and the risk increased more abruptly in men than in women. The risk of atrial fibrillation was highest in frequent binge drinkers compared to infrequent light drinkers. These findings indicate that in the asymptomatic healthy population, drinking increases the risk of new onset atrial fibrillation in a dose-dependent manner, regardless of sex. Next up is transesophageal echocardiography necessary in patients undergoing ablation of atrial fibrillation on an uninterrupted direct oral anticoagulant regimen. A total of 6,186 patients were prospectively registered and analyzed. The mean CHATS DS2 VASC score was 2.86. Intracardiac echocardiography ruled out left atrial appendage and left atrial thrombi in all patients and revealed smoke in 1,672 patients, or 27.03%. Transient ischemic attack was noted in one patient with long-standing persistent atrial fibrillation in the setting of a missed dose of a rivaroxaban before ablation. The authors conclude that performing AF ablation in patients with uninterrupted direct oral anticoagulants without TEE is safe and feasible in high-stroke risk patients. Elimination of routine pre-ablation TEE would have significant economic and clinical implications. Next up is off-label dosing of non-vitamin K antagonist oral anticoagulants and the clinical outcomes in Asian patients with atrial fibrillation. The purpose of this study 
was to investigate the associations between inappropriate dosing of novel oral anticoagulants or NOACs and the clinical outcomes in patients within the healthcare system in Taiwan. They found that about 3 in 10 Asian AF patients were treated with off-label dosing NOACs in daily practice. Compared to on-label dosing, underdosing was associated with high risk of ischemic stroke and systemic embolism, whereas overdosing was associated with higher risk of major bleeding. Thus, even for Asian AF patients at higher risk of ble for bleeding, NOACs still should be prescribed at a dosing based on clinical trial criteria and the guideline recommendations. The next article is bipolar radiofrequency ablation for ventricular tachycardias originating from interventricular septum, safety and efficacy in a pilot cohort study. The author enrolled 21 patients with non-ischemic dilated cardiomyopathy scheduled for a bipolar RF ablation procedure because of drug refractory VT of suspected septal origin. They found that, that bipolar RF ablation is feasible in patients with non-ischemic dilated cardiomyopathy and drug refractory VT of septal origin. Extra interventricular septum cardi uh, substrate and inflammatory non-ischemic dilated cardiomyopathy etiology were associated with an adverse outcome. However, a larger study will be needed to determine the safety and efficacy of this approach. The following article is determining the optimal duration for premature ventricular contraction monitoring. VPCs have hour-to-hour -hour and day-to-day -day variation. The authors studied 116 patch recordings from 107 patients to determine the optimal duration for ambulatory ECG monitoring for accurate assessment of VPC burden. Mean overall VPC burden was 13.4%. The authors found that mobile telemetry for a period of about seven days accurately reflects overall VPC burden. Measurement of VPC burden for only 24 to 48 hours may not accurately reflect total burden. Monitoring for two weeks or longer adds little additional VPC information. Next up is double balloon technique for retrograde venous ethanol in ablation or ventricular arrhythmias in the absence of suitable intramural veins. The purpose of this study was to validate the double balloon approach to enhance ethanol delivery in cases of unfavorable venous anatomy during ventricular arrhythmia ablation. The authors found that the double balloon technique can enhance ethanol delivery to target isolated vein segments, block collateral flow, or target extensive areas, and can expand the utility of venous ethanol for treatment of ventricular arrhythmias. Coming up next is macro reentrant 
biatrial tachycardia relevant to interatrial septal in, uh, incisions after mitral valve surgery, electrophysiological characteristics and ablation strategy. The authors identified 10 biatrial tachycardias from a total of 84 tachycardias after mitral valve surgery. Using ultra-high density mapping, the authors were able to obtain a detailed description of the macro reentrant circuit of biatrial tachycardias associated with interatrial septal incisions. Posterior inferior interatrial connections were essential for the circuit and should be the preferred target for ablation. The next article is common and rare susceptibility genetic variants predisposing to Bugatta syndrome in Thailand. The authors conducted a genome-wide association study, or GWAS, to explore the association of common variants in 154 Thai Brugada syndrome cases and 432 controls. They found that two loci were significantly associated with Brugada syndrome. The first was near SCN5A slash SCN10A. The second locus was near HEY2. The authors conclude that genetic basis of Brugada syndrome Thailand includes a wide spectrum of variant frequencies and effect sizes, as previously shown in European and Japanese populations. Common variants near SCN5A and HEY2 are associated with Brugada syndrome in the Thai population, confirming the trans-ethnic transferability of these two major Brugada syndrome foci. The next one is simultaneous epicardial endocardial mapping of the sinus node in humans with structural heart disease, impact of overdrive suppression on sinoatrial exits. The authors performed the simultaneous intraoperative endo-epi sinoatrial node mapping during sinus rhythm at baseline and the post-overdrive suppression. They mapped a total of 16 patients with structural heart diseases. The baseline activations were unicentric and predominantly exited cranially with endo-epi synchrony. However, with overdrive suppression, a tendency for caudal exit shift and endo-epi asynchrony was observed. The authors conclude that during mapping of the intact human heart, sinoatrial node demonstrated redundancy of sinoatrial exits with post-overdrive shift in sites of earliest activation and epi-endo-dissociation of sinoatrial exits. This is consistent with prior data demonstrating that clinical sinus node dysfunction only occurs in the setting of, the, of advanced atrial structural remodeling. Next up is amplitude of QRS complex within initial 40 milliseconds in V2 or V2 QRS I40. Novel electrocardiographic criterion for predicting accurate localization of outflow tract ventricular arrhythmia origin. The authors studied 275 patients with successful ablation in the right or left ventricular outflow tract in a development cohort. They found that QRS I40 of identical precordial leads were significantly greater 
in the LVOT group than the RVOT group. QRSI-40 or V2 exhibited the greatest area under the curve of 0 0.950, with cutoff of greater than or equal to 0.52 millivolt predicting LVOT origin. This new criterion was validated in a validation cohort with 107 patients. These findings indicate that V2 QRS I-40 is a novel and accurate ECG criterion to predict the origin of outflow tract ventricular arrhythmia that outperforms previous criteria. The next article is titled New Algorithm for Accessory Pathway Localization Focused on Screening Septal Pathways in Pediatric Patients with Wolf-W-White Syndrome. The authors studied 120 patients with a mean age of 11.7 years who underwent castor ablation of WPW syndrome. A new algorithm was designed to increase the sensitivity for septal pathways. The new algorithm achieved its best discrimination by combining several parameters together in each step, including QRS priority in V1 and QRS shape in lead one for left right discrimination, and delta wave polarity in V1, QRS transition in precordial leads, and delta wave polarity in lead 3 for septal pathway screening. They found that the new algorithm was superior for localizing septal pathways in pediatric patients. Next up is high throughput discovery of trafficking deficient variants in the cardiac potassium channel KV11.1. KCNH2 encodes the KV11.1 potassium channel responsible for IKR. Variants in KCNH2 that lead to decreased IKR have been associated with Long QT syndrome type 2. The authors developed a method to quantitate KV11.1 variant trafficking on a pilot region of 11 study uh, residues in the S5 helix. The authors found that this new method accurately generated trafficking data for variants in KV11.1 and is extendable both to all residues in KV11.1 and to other cell surface proteins. The next paper is a study in porcine model titled Caster-Free Ablation of Infarct Scar through proton beam therapy, tissue effects in a porcine model. 14 infarcted swine underwent proton beam treatment of the scar and were fo uh, followed for up to 30 weeks. Magnetic resonance imaging was performed every four weeks. Treated scar areas showed a significantly lower fraction of surviving myocytes at 30 weeks compared to untreated SCAR, indicating SCAR homogenization. The authors conclude that radioablation of cardiac infarct SCAR leads to significant homogenization of the SCAR, replicating the histologic effects of radiofrequency ablation. These original articles were followed by two contemporary reviews the first one is titled Towards Detection of Conduction Tissue During Cardiac Surgery, 
Light at the End of the Tunnel. The second one is titled Mind the Gap, Knowledge Deficits in Evaluating Young Sudden Cardiac Deaths. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. For Heart Rhythm, I'm Editor-in-Chief Dr. Peng Shen Chen.